Well, good morning. All right, you guys are in better shape than those 830 people, man. We good? Yes? Well, hey, I missed you last week. I hope all of you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm excited about today. Today we're kicking off a brand new series called Old Testament Jesus. I've been excited about this series, and uh, throughout the series, we want to hear from you. All right, we want to hear what God is teaching you. Uh, what God is doing in your life over the next few weeks. And so we want to invite you and encourage you to share those things. Uh, you can share them easily on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, using the hashtag OTJesus. Uh, this is just a simple way for us to put the hope and the truth of Jesus in front of people that we're connected to, that may not be connected to a church or connected to Jesus in any way, but it's also a unique opportunity for our church family to connect with one another outside of Sundays. I think there's something special about us being able to share with each other uh, what God's teaching us and what God is doing in our lives. So, so make use of that. Hashtag again, OT Jesus. Share it on social media. And I look forward to, to seeing what God is, is teaching you over the next few weeks. Well, listen, I don't know if you're with me on this, but it's really hard for me to believe it's already December. But it's harder for me to believe that Christmas is only 18 days away. That woke some people up, right? Those of you who have done no Christmas shopping like me, listen, we got two and a half weeks left, so we have got to get on it. But, but here's the truth, man. Because of the season we're in, it's really difficult right now, no matter who you are or what you walked in the room believing to avoid Jesus, isn't it? I mean, you can turn on the radio, you hear songs about him, turn on the TV, uh, there are movies playing that include his story, drive through your neighborhood, you see the nativity scene set up. Uh, even that word Christmas points us to Jesus. It contains Jesus' supreme title, the, the title of Christ. You guys know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? It's his title. It means anointed one or Messiah. You see, I don't know if there's another time of year that forces us to consider and think on Jesus like the time of year we're in. And, and the goal of this new series, we're starting today simple. We want to force you in a way to consider and think on Jesus in a way that maybe you've never thought about him before, through the lens of the Old Testament. Did you know that long before that very first Christmas morning, that Jesus made several physical appearances here on the earth? That during Old Testament times, he was alive, he was active, he was appearing to men in physical form and revealing truths about God to those men. You see, the Bible teaches that no one has seen God or can see God the Father and live, yet we find all these Old Testament stories of men claiming to see God. And, and because of that, theologians agree in large part that these Old Testament stories of men seeing and encountering God are stories of men seeing and encountering Jesus. Which makes sense because Jesus, according to the Bible, is who? Well, he's God in the flesh, isn't he? And what I love about these Old Testament appearances, which are also called Christophanies, by the way. You can write that word down and press all your friends at the Christmas party. Um, Christophanies. What I love about these appearances is this. They prove a foundational truth of our Christian faith, which is this. That Jesus Christ is the eternally existing Son of God. 
that that very first Christmas morning did not mark the beginning of his life. Contrary to what cults and religions may teach, Jesus is not a created being like you and I. He has always existed before the beginning of time alongside God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he was at work in the affairs of man long before he was born as a babe into a manger. And over the next several weeks, all we're going to do in the series is this. We're going to look at a few of those Old Testament appearances And we're going to learn what the Old Testament Jesus means for our lives today. So if you have a Bible or you have a device with a YouVersion app on it, go ahead and get those out. And I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 6 with me. Isaiah chapter 6. If you're new to Bible reading, uh, if you can kind of find about the halfway point in your Bible, go to the book of Psalm, flip over a few pages, you'll eventually run into Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Before we get going, I, I will tell you, man, this passage may be my favorite passage in the whole Bible. Definitely my favorite Old Testament passage. Uh, The story that we're going to walk through this morning had a profound impact on my life as a a 20-something, early 20-something young man who was really wrestling with a call to ministry uh, that I didn't really want at that time. Um, This passage has, has altered my life, and I'm praying that as we walk through it today, that it might just impact your life in the same way that it's impacted mine. But, but as you're getting there, Isaiah 6, here's some background, all right? The Bible tells us that the king of Judah, King Uzziah, he had just died. Uh, this was a loved king. He had started ruling in his nation at only 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years. So in Isaiah 6, what we find is a nation in mourning. And Isaiah, who was part of the royal family, probably king, or probably cousins with King Uzziah, we find him walking into the temple to mourn and grieve the death of his friend, his family member, and his king. But but when he shows up to the temple, he has this unexpected experience, an experience that changes him forever. He has an experience with Jesus Christ himself. And if you want further proof of that, all you got to do is go to the New Testament. Look at the book of John, John chapter 12, verse 41. John tells us clearly that it was, in fact, Jesus himself that Isaiah saw in the temple that day. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do, because I want you to see what Isaiah saw, and I want you to experience what he experienced, we're going to break this passage into three distinct parts so that we can understand what what Isaiah's experience means for all of our lives. And and we're going to start in verse 1. So look at this. Here's the first part of the passage, Jesus' revelation to Isaiah. Start reading with me in verse 1. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I know it's still early for some of us, even though it's 10 o'clock, but I need you to turn your brains on. I need you to use your imaginations this morning because, again, I, I want you to see what Isaiah saw, okay? So put yourself in his shoes. Imagine you're him. Imagine your friend, your family member, your king has just died. You're hurting, you're grieving. And so your plan is to visit the temple, this majestic building, to go and to find comfort in the presence of God. And when you walk through the front doors, here's Jesus. He's seated on this throne. It's high, it's lifted up. 
And as, as you're looking at him, you're reminded in this moment that even though the earthly king that you've served for so long is dead and gone, that the sovereign king of heaven and earth is still on his throne ruling and reigning. That even though life feels out of control, everything is in control because the one who holds all things in his hand is in control. And as you're looking at King Jesus seated on his throne, you start to notice that the robe that he's wearing, it's filling the temple, this robe that signifies royalty. You see, Isaiah wasn't laying his eyes on the poor Galilean Jesus that many of us are familiar with from the New Testament. He was looking at King Jesus, ruler of heaven and earth. And as his eyes are are fixed on Jesus, he starts to notice the angels surrounding the throne, the seraphim. They each have uh, six wings with two they're flying, two they're covering their face, and with two they're covering their feet. And imagine you're Isaiah in that moment. You're looking at these angels, and your mind starts going to stories you've heard about the old prophet Moses. You start remembering stories like the one we find in Exodus 6 where Moses has this holy moment with God at the burning bush. And God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, you need to take your shoes off because the ground that you're standing on, it's holy ground. And then your mind goes to Exodus 33, this passage in which Moses is pleading, God, I want to see your glory. God, would you show me your face? And God says, Moses, listen, you, you can't look on my glory in my face because you'll die if you do that. And so God takes Moses and hides him in the cleft of a rock and and passes by and Moses basically gets to see his shadow. And you as Isaiah start putting two and two together, right? And you start realizing that that those same things are true for even these heavenly beings that have been created by God to exist and dwell in his presence. That the glory, the holiness, the greatness of Jesus Christ is too much for those angels to look on. That they're covering their feet to acknowledge that they are unworthy to even stand in his presence. And as you're taking the sin, you start to hear their song. Right? They start crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then another one, holy, holy, holy the, the Lord is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as you listen to this song, your mind can't escape that one word that they keep repeating, holy, 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 over and over again, holy, holy, holy. You see, in Jewish literature and poetry, if a person wanted to emphasize a word or a phrase, they would repeat that word or phrase. Uh, today, in our culture, if we want to re- uh, emphasize something that, w- that we're writing about, we'll bold it, we'll underline it, we'll italicize it, we'll uh, put exclamation marks at the end, right? For the Jewish person, they repeated it. If you repeated something twice, it meant that that word or phrase was of crucial importance. When you repeated something three times, it means that you are elevating it to the highest degree of importance. So as Isaiah is there listening to the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He knew that something special was being said that he couldn't ignore and couldn't miss. And then imagine if you're Isaiah, you're listening to the song, you're taking in King Jesus and all the angels, and then all of a sudden the building that you're standing in starts to shake violently. The whole place fills up with smoke, and and you're terrified, and you start shaking violently along with it, and you start to realize that the glory and majesty of Jesus is so great that even inanimate objects start to respond when he's present. Jesus' church is a holy God. See, here's why it's so important for us to understand that. Because I fear oftentimes we either miss or forget that before Jesus is anything else, he's holy. 
right? Now prove my point. Um, imagine at the beginning of this message, if I were to have asked you to describe Jesus in one word, what word would you have used? You see, I have this sneaking suspicion that maybe very few of us before this message would have used words like, well, Jesus is love, and Jesus is grace, and, and Jesus is mercy, Jesus is good, he's forgiveness, he's accepting. But I wonder how many of us would have used the word that we're talking about today and, and said, no, at the end of the day, Jesus is holy, as this passage teaches. And not just holy, 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 holy. We're going to talk about what that word means in a minute, but look, did you know that nowhere in the entire Bible is an attribute of Jesus elevated to the highest degree outside of Isaiah chapter 6? The Bible never says that Jesus is love, 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 grace, 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 patience, 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 uh, humility, humility, humility. There's only one attribute of Jesus in the whole Bible that's elevated to the highest degree of importance, and that's Jesus' holiness. If you take a note, you can write this down. The word holy simply means separate. I think a lot of times when we hear that word holy, our minds automatically go to uh, the concepts of purity or sinlessness. And while holiness includes purity and sinlessness, the idea is so much more than that. Uh, another word to think of when you hear the word holy is transcendent which means to exceed usual limits. Uh, when we call Jesus holy, here's what we're saying, that, that he is transcendently separate from us. In other words, we're declaring that Jesus is high above and beyond us. He's higher than the earth and all the living creatures. All power is his. There is no one and nothing more powerful than him. That he's so far above and beyond us that he seems completely foreign to us that he's so different from who we are that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around all that he is. That's, that's what we're saying when we call Jesus holy. You see, you and I, we should get this. If, if we've ever picked this book up and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus, and sat back and thought to ourselves, how in the world could Jesus live like that, right? I'll never be like Jesus. Look at the way he loved. Look at the way he served. Look at how he gave. Look at the way he sacrificed. Look at the way he put up with the disciples when they were acting like idiots, like all the time, right? How in the world did Jesus do it? If you've ever had an experience like that, can I tell you what you were recognizing in Jesus unbeknownst to you? You were recognizing the fact that he's holy, that his love is a holy love, that his grace is a holy grace, that his mercy is a holy mercy, his humility is a holy humility. You were simply recognizing that in all his attributes, Jesus is far above and beyond you. So much so that it's hard for you to comprehend all that he is. Again, church, look at me. Jesus is holy before he is anything else. Now, why is it so important for us to, to really grasp that truth and understand that? Well, we find the answer to that in the second part of, of this passage, the second section, if you will, which is this. We find it in, in verse 5, uh, Isaiah's response to Jesus. Look at what he says in this one verse. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, in order for us to really understand verse 5, the first thing you got to know is that Isaiah, he was a prophet. Uh, meaning that he was a man who spoke on God's behalf to God's people. 
when a prophet back in Old Testament times uh, and even New Testament times had good news to deliver to people, they would typically preface that good news with the word blessed. You can find a great example of this in Matthew 5 where Jesus is teaching through the Beatitudes and he makes statements like these. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? I can keep going, but you get the idea. Now, when a prophet had bad news to deliver, he would preface the bad news with that word, woe. And this is not like W-H-O-A, the Keanu Reeves type of woe. You know, it's not that kind of, of woe. This is W-O-E. That, that word implies a message of judgment, a message of, of doom. Again, you can find a great example of this in Matthew 23 in the New Testament when Jesus is talking to some religious leaders of his day and he says to them, woe to you, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but but you're full of death on the inside. Again, I could keep going, but I think you get the point. Now, what's interesting in Isaiah 6 is this. We see something that never happened. A prophet never called down judgment upon himself. But for some reason, Isaiah does. And do you want to know why? We just read it in in verse 5. He says, woe is me. I have a dirty mouth is basically what he says. And I live in a nation full of people with dirty mouths. That's really weird, isn't it, when you first hear that? Until you start to understand what the Bible teaches to be true about our mouths. The Bible says that out of the overflow of our hearts... The mouth speaks. That that the mouth basically indicates what's going on deep inside of our beings. With our mouths, we speak praises and we speak curses. We speak life and we speak death. That what goes into a man's mouth doesn't defile him. It's what comes out of a man's mouth that defiles him. You see, if I want to know what's really going on in your heart, all I really need to do is sit back and listen to what you say. That's what the Bible teaches about our, our mouths. That's why your words matter. That's why your, your posts on Facebook matter. Your heart is a great indicator of what's going on spiritually inside of you. And Isaiah's recognizing this. When he sees Jesus in all his holiness, all he can do is confess how unholy he is. He's going, oh man, my dirty mouth is, is showing I got a jacked up heart. And, and all the rest of these people, dirty mouths are, are proving just how sinful they truly are. And what's interesting to me about Isaiah is this. He's confessing this about himself as the most righteous man in the entire nation of Judah at the time. He had more integrity than anybody living in the entire nation. You see, it could have been really tempting for Isaiah to see Jesus in all his holiness and then to take his eyes off of Jesus and to start looking around at other people and to say, at least I'm not as bad as them, right? These people's mouths are a whole lot dirtier than mine. Don't we do that at times? We want to feel better about our spiritual lives. Don't we do that? Get our eyes off of Jesus. We'll start looking at other people. Well, they're not doing as good as I'm doing when it comes to loving Jesus. And we start to to compare to make ourselves feel better. Look, in this moment, Isaiah couldn't do that. It was impossible. When he saw Jesus in all of his holiness, it didn't matter to him how he measured up against other people. All he could think on was how he measured up in light of who Jesus was. Now, in Isaiah's response, listen, I told you this a minute ago, in Isaiah's response, we find the importance of why you and I have to grasp the holiness of Jesus. Please don't miss this, all right? And if you're taking notes, this is something good to write down. If you fail to see Jesus as holy before anything else, 
you will fail to see yourself for who you truly are. And if you fail to see yourself for who you truly are, you will fail to see how deep your need for Jesus truly is. Listen, I'm gonna say it again because I don't want us to miss it. If you fail to see Jesus as holy before you, before you see him as anything else, you will fail to see yourself for who you truly are. And if you fail to see yourself for who you truly are, you will fail to see how deep your need for Jesus truly is. You see, that's the issue in making Jesus out to be less holy than he truly is. That's the issue in, in you trying to make yourself holier than you really are by comparing yourself to other people and, and not to Jesus. Church, this is something that you and I have to understand because if, if we miss the holiness of Jesus, we miss everything. Right? I'll give you some examples. Um, if you're that person who kind of sees Jesus instead of uh, being holy as more like your homeboy, right? You remember those t-shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. Uh, I think they made hats, all this kind of stuff. You remember that? If Jesus to you is, is more homeboy who, who really doesn't care how you live your life instead of the holy God that he is. Look, let me ask you this question. Why do you need him? Why do you need him? The answer is you don't really need him, right? At the end of the day, why do you need Jesus if that's all that he is? Uh, if Jesus to you isn't holy, but instead he is nothing more than, than a get out of hell free card whose love and grace exists to be abused and taken advantage of. Let me ask you again, why do you need Jesus? Like, and I know, oh, I need Jesus to keep me out of hell. Okay, but beyond that, why do you need him? The answer is you don't need him, right? If you're busy uh, comparing yourself to other people, to make yourself feel satisfied with where you are spiritually instead of always comparing yourself to Jesus so that you understand uh, who you're really supposed to be like. Look, why do you need Jesus? You don't really need him. When, when, when the other people uh, that you're surrounded by, when their spiritual lives, the condition of their spiritual lives leaves you satisfied with yours, right? You don't need Jesus at that point. Church, look at me. We all need Jesus and we all have to see his holiness to understand how much we need him. You see, when you start to understand just how holy he is and how unholy you are, you start to understand that, that you don't need Jesus simply to save you from sin, death, and hell. You need Jesus to save you from you every single day, right? You need Jesus to be for you who he's promised to be so that you can be the person God's created you and saved you to be. You need the power of Jesus coming through on your behalf every day so that you can overcome sin and strongholds in your life. You need the presence of Jesus to be with you to overcome hardships and trials that you face. You need the very spirit of Jesus living inside of you to give you the faith, the courage, and the gifts you need so that you can live the life God's called you to live here on the earth. You need him. You see, there's this gap that exists between Jesus' holiness and your holiness. And that gap can't be ignored, shouldn't be ignored, but instead it should be focused on, and that gap should ultimately cause you and I to reach out and to strive for Jesus every single day. And here's the good news. As you reach across that gap that exists, Jesus' promise to you is this. He'll close the gap on your behalf. He'll start to go to work on your life and he will make you more holy. In other words, he's going to work on you and make you more and more like him. Isn't that a beautiful promise? One I think we often forget at times that, that Jesus doesn't ask us to make ourselves holy. We can't do that anyway. It's an impossible uh, it's an impossible thing to do. Jesus' promises that he'll do it for us. But we forget that at times, don't we? 
which is why some of us will do churchy spiritual things for a season and they get really tired and frustrated when we don't feel any holier than we did six months ago. Like nothing changes. And we're like, man, I, I've been doing all the right things. Why has nothing changed? Well, well, here's why. It's because you read the Bible and you come to church and you pray and you serve and you give not to reach and to strive for Jesus. You, you do all those things instead because in your mind, that's just what holy people do, right? If I want to be a holy person, I need to read my Bible and pray and come to church. That's what holy people do. And, and maybe if I do all the things that holy people do, I can make myself more holy. Look, that would be like me taking my wife to dinner each week because in my mind, that's what good husbands do, right? They plan date nights with their wives every Friday night. They take them out to dinner. And so I load my wife in the car. We go out to dinner. And then we get to dinner and I don't look at her. I don't talk to her. Uh, I play Candy Crush on my phone the whole time we're at dinner. And then on the way home, I make a ride in the back seat, right? <laughs> Listen, I can say all day long I'm an awesome husband because I plan regular date nights for my wife. But if you knew that was the kind of date night I was planning, you would say, bro, you're, you're not an awesome husband. You don't plan those date nights to grow in, in your relationship with your wife. You're planning those date nights so that you can just feel better about who you are as an awful husband. You just want to be able to say to other people, look at what a great husband I am. Every Friday night is date night. Are you with me? Don't miss this. Look, you see, when you use those practices I mentioned earlier, the Bible, prayer, coming to church, serving and giving, as nothing more than a way to make yourself feel better about you, to feel more holy than you really are, you're missing the point of those things. You see, those practices were never meant to make you feel better about you. They were given to grow your relationship, to deepen your relationship with Jesus. Church, look, you read the Bible because you want to hear Jesus speak to you. You pray because you want to talk to him. You come to church like this because you want to celebrate him and make much of him. You want to get your eyes off of you and onto him so that he can work in your life. You serve and you give because you want to be like the Jesus you say you love. And when you do those practices with the right motivation to strive, to reach for Jesus, to know him more. Again, Jesus' promise is this. I'll go to work on you supernaturally through my Holy Spirit. I'll change you. I'll transform you. I'll make you more like me, which means that Jesus' promise is to make us holy. Listen, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Don't ever forget that becoming holy means becoming like Jesus. Becoming holy means becoming like Jesus. You can do all the churchy, religious, spiritual things you want, but if your life isn't looking more and more like the life of Jesus, you are not growing in holiness. He's our target. He's the goal. And only Jesus can make us more like him. This is exactly what we see him doing for Isaiah in the last part of this passage, the final section. We're going to pick back up and we're going to start reading in verse 6. And so look at this. This is Jesus' restoration of Isaiah. The Bible says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. So here's the picture. Isaiah, he is broken over his unholiness. His eyes have seen King Jesus, the Lord of hosts, the Holy Son of God. And in that moment, he's recognized how broken, sinful, jacked up he truly is. And that realization has brought him to his knees. He's overwhelmed with guilt. 
He feels condemned in that moment. He can't escape it. There's nowhere for him to hide. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't look at Isaiah and go, clean up your act, bro. I want you to leave here. I want you to do better. Try harder. Clean your mouth up, right? And and then we can kind of talk about our relationship. He doesn't look at Isaiah and say, yeah, right, dirty sinner. That's the way you should respond. No, instead, what does Jesus do? He sends an angel to meet Isaiah where he is. I love this. This is the good news of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't ask us to meet him where he is. He says, no, I'll meet you where you are. In all your brokenness, in all your sinfulness, in all your guilt, in all your shame, I'm coming to you. And this angel comes and he brings with him this burning coal and he touches the lips of this broken, sinful man. The imagery here is imagery of cleansing. Jesus in this moment, um, through sending this angel to minister to Isaiah, was forgiving Isaiah of all his sin. He was cleansing him from unholiness and unrighteousness. And he was restoring Isaiah back into a right relationship with himself. And I love this. Jesus wastes no time, right? He doesn't say to Isaiah next, all right, bro, now that I've forgiven you and and cleansed you, there's a a year-long waiting period before I can do anything with your life that matters. We're going to have to uh, put you through um, certain tests. You're going to have to prove yourself to me. No, instead, Jesus goes from, from healing and restoring this man to sending him out the door with a significant purpose for his life. That's what I love about Jesus, man. Not only does Jesus desire to know sinful people like you and me on a personal level, but his desire is to use our lives in significant ways, ways that ultimately make much of him here on the earth. I want to tell you what that means for all of us in the room, all right? First, I want to talk to those people that walked in today without a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you walked in, you've never done the church thing, the whole Jesus thing's new. You're skeptical, but you're here Uh, I just want to say, man, welcome to Crosspoint. We love you. We're so glad that you're here today. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that God loves you. More than you could ever comprehend, he loves you. In spite of who you've been, in spite of how unclean you feel, in spite of all your mistakes, in spite of your past life, God loves you and he's proved his love for you through his son, Jesus. It's not your job to fix your life. It's not your job to clean yourself up. It's not your job to to turn yourself into a person that God can love, accept, and use. That's not your job. That's Jesus' job. Only he can do that for you. And look at me. He wants to do it for you today. The only job you have is, is to say yes to him. Yes to him as the holy son of God who came into this world to die in your place on a cross for your sins, to pay the the price that your sin required and who also rose from the dead three days later to conquer sin, death, and hell on your behalf. When you say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord, Jesus does for you what he did for Isaiah. He, He restores you. He forgives you. He cleanses you. He removes all your guilt and all your shame. And he makes you into a new person who can be loved, accepted, and used by God for significant things here on the earth. And I hope that you'll say yes to him if you've never said yes to him before. Now, now secondly, for those of us in the room who do know Jesus, here's what this means for us. It means that our response to the grace and forgiveness that we've received from Jesus should be the same response that Isaiah gave. And what was his response? Do you remember? Here I am. Jesus, here I am. Send me, use me. I'll go anywhere. I'll I'll do anything. Jesus, take my life and do with me what you will. 
Church people, look at me. You know Jesus didn't save you so that you could take a seat and just hang out until you die, right? Jesus saved you to send you out. As Christ's followers, we are all sent people. Jesus tells us this himself in the New Testament in places like Matthew 28, 18 through 20. In places like John 20, 21. If you were here last Sunday, you heard my friend Stevie teach on this. That it's found people. The call in our lives is to go out and to find other people. That Jesus wants to find us in our brokenness. Forgive us, restore us, heal us, and then send us out so that we can find others who are far from God and help them find their way back to God. And if the cry of your heart each day is not, God, here I am, send me out. Send me to dark places. Send me to broken people. Send me to people who are far from you. I'll say anything. I'll serve anybody. I'll, I'll love anyone. God, send me out. Use me. If that's not the cry of your heart, I fear that you've missed the point of grace and forgiveness that's been offered to you through Jesus. We are sent people. Look at what uh, Pastor R.C. Sproul says about this in his book, The Holiness of God. He's writing here on Jesus' restoration of Isaiah. I would strongly recommend you get on Amazon and buy this book, The Holiness of God. One of the greatest books I think I've read impacted my life greatly. But look, he says there's a pattern here, a pattern repeated over and over again in history. God appears, man quakes in terror, God forgives and heals, God sins. Look at this last part, I love this. He says, from brokenness to mission is the pattern of man. Church, look at me. Has the grace and forgiveness you've received through Jesus moved you to a life of mission? Are you pursuing holiness each day for the purpose of making much of God and helping people who are far from him find their way back to him? Is that your purpose? Is that what you're living for each day? Uh, this past week, I saw this great video on YouTube. Um, maybe some of you guys saw it. It was this guy who was at the beach and he came upon this dead shark that had been washed up onto the sand. Have you guys see this? So he walks up on this dead shark and the shark's belly is moving. Pretty crazy. So this guy was brave. He, he pulls out a knife and he cuts open the belly of this dead shark. And inside, it was unreal, are these little shark babies, right? They're moving around. Here they are trapped in, in their dead mother. They can't do anything for themselves. They're, they're helpless. And so this man, he finds them cuts them out of this body of death and he himself personally carries these little baby sharks while trying not to get bit up back into the water which is life for them and as I watch this I'm going man it's incredible and it's almost like God spoke to me in that moment and said that's the purpose of your life James that's the purpose of your life to find people who are trapped in bodies of death you, you with me here and to help them find their way back to the one who is life, Jesus Christ, the living water. Church, that's our purpose in life. What's God's will for my life? That's it. What should I be living for? That's the one thing you should be living for each and every day. Are you living for it? Is that why you're pursuing holiness? I'll go ahead and be honest and tell you as we close that a life lived on mission, a sent life, it's not always easy. This is the part of Isaiah's story that often gets missed. When Isaiah walked out the door, God gave him a message to preach that no one listened to. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. Nobody changed. Nobody repented. And sometimes that's going to happen to us. We're going to name Jesus. We're going to serve people. We're going to love well. And nothing's going to change. Family's going to stay the same. Friends are going to stay the same. Workplace isn't going to change. But look, you can go to bed at night knowing that you've been faithful to being the person that God's called you to be. And that's all that matters. 
Your job is to be faithful. God's job is to produce results. That's it. So look, pursue Jesus. Pursue holiness. And understand you're a sin person. That's the purpose. It's not holiness for holiness sake. It's holiness for the sake of mission.